0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and I'm joined for our BCG Insights podcast today by Alex Osterwalder, the founder of Strategizer, the inventor of the Business Model Canvas, which is a novel tool for laying out a business model, and author of several best-selling business books, including Business Model Generation. He just published a new book, The Invincible Company, which I'm looking forward to discussing with him. Welcome, Alex. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Alex, first of all, in a word, tell us what the book is about and why you wrote it. So
1: obviously the title sounds very arrogant, right? The Invincible Company. But the whole idea is that no company can be invincible. What you really can do is constantly reinvent yourself. And that's what the book is really about. We help organizations understand how they don't just create one success but they constantly reinvent their business models and and what's the best way to do that so there are a lot of books on the topic but what we try to do is give very practical tools and processes to implement this in in
0: in an organization sounds like a perennial issue Why, why write this book now You know, the
1: first thing my co-author and myself, Yves Pinier, we always ask when we write another book, does the world need another business book? And (laughs) it's pretty arrogant to say yes to that um, because so many great books have already been written, but from our work, you know, we've seen that there are very few companies that are good at constantly reinventing themselves, constantly reinventing their business models. So we thought with the right tools, with the right content, we make very visual books we can actually help leaders get to the next level. So that's why we thought it's the right time to write a book. And then you know, we, we kind of published in an interesting period with COVID-19, which is all about disruption, because the reason why you want to constantly reinvent yourself is, is to be safe from disruption. Because rather than waiting until you get disrupted, why not reinvent yourself before that? And, you know, now we have the the biggest of all disruptions with the coronavirus is more like an atomic bomb scenario so it's a it's a very timely book I think.
0: So you talk about a portfolio of explore bets and exploit bets I think uh, most business leaders will understand that. Of course one tricky question is how many explore bets um, if you're sitting there trying to allocate your R&;D budget or your proportion of explore activities, how do you think about a number what's what's enough?
1: So, you know, first you need to ask yourself, how take your exploit portfolio, the businesses that you have, you know, how much are they at risk of disruption? And you can do an assessment there. And the more you're at risk, the more you actually need to invest in your explore portfolio. But first I think there's, a, there's an innovation myth that we need to destroy, <laughs> that it's all about having that great idea and the creative genius, and then you make a big bet to get a big return. Turns out innovation works very differently you actually need to make very many small bets and then only continue with follow-up investments in bets that show traction, right? So we use uh, data from early stage venture capital, which shows how many projects are outliers. So how many projects do you need to invest in? Let's say small amount you in know, $100,000, maybe even less in order to start producing those outliers, not picking them, but investing in how many in order to create one outlier. And it turns out the number is 250 projects that you need to invest in in order to create one big outlier. That's the ratio that we see in early stage venture capital, which is the closest proxy that we can get, right? Um, And the return is actually, you know, 50 times return on capital. To create one outlier, you need to invest in 250 projects at least. And the number is probably bigger because that's where the data ends at 50 times return on capital. So That destroys the myth that we need to make one big bet or two, three big bets to get a big return. Actually works the other way around. You need to make many bets and then make follow-up investments until the winning bets emerge, right? That's the way venture capital works. That's the way innovation works. And we need to build the structures to support this kind of working. Very different, right, from your established business. When you build a new factory, you can make one big bet because you've done it before. You know how that works. Extend the supply chain, increase the the sales force. You know how that works. In innovation, uncertainty is high. So you need to make many bets for the winning ones to emerge.
0: I think that helps us with this question, how much is enough? You're saying it's about the number of bets as much as the size of the bets.
1: Yeah. and, And what I'd add to that, so maybe just one thing to add is, you know, a lot of companies will then say, well, 250 is a lot. And it just depends on what what's the return you're looking for. You're looking for an outsized return. You have to invest in at least 250. If you're looking for a smaller return, let's say in just in one business unit or in one you know country, then obviously you can make less bets because the return will be smaller. I think that, that ratio really depends on the return you're looking for.
0: I think um, what you're suggesting will make sense to most business leaders. In other words, learn from venture capitalists explore as well as exploit have a portfolio of bets of course in practice it's very hard to do that well what are some of the practical obstacles in large corporations that prevent good intentions from translating into good results
1: yeah excellent question right because it's it's relatively easy to understand in theory but then you know to put it in, in place you need a couple of things I think the the biggest one is, leadership commitment which sounds a little bit trivial but it actually is important that the leadership really is behind this whole idea of building not just an exploit portfolio not just investing in efficiency innovation to improve what you have but to create that space where you can explore and of course there's no company on the planet doesn't have some kind of incubator or so but it's often innovation theater the first thing you need to really do is give innovation power and clout you need to elevate it from innovation theater, something that is just for the show, towards something that is very strategic. And a great example there is, you know, one of my favorite examples at the moment is Ping An, the Chinese financial conglomerate. They started out in banking and uh, insurance, but then they decided less than a decade ago to become a technology player. And the founder, Peter Ma, created a co-CEO position For Jessica Tan, who is responsible for exploring the future, making many bets, failing with many in order to create those that will win. So giving innovation power in your organization is the thing I would start with because that's not the case in most organizations. And this is not, okay, we have a CTO. No, it's really, you know, the chief entrepreneur who needs to be as powerful as the CEO. And then again, the form that it takes, it can vary from one organization to the other. At Pingan, it's the co-CEO. So I think giving innovation power is the biggest lever that you can use to really get innovation kickstarted.
0: Coming back to this idea of explore, don't just be more efficient with your current business model. I think there's a new game in town, which is resilience. We need to explore, we need to exploit, but we need to do so in a sustainable manner. I think COVID-19 has showed us that. Is there any relationship between your thinking in the Invincible Company and the idea of resilience?
1: Oh, absolutely, right? That's the whole foundation behind the book in the sense that you can renovate business models. A good example is Hilti moving from products to services, You know, not just selling light machine tools for builders, but building a, a recurring service with recurring revenues. You can renovate some of your businesses, but you also need to start thinking about the business models for the next decade, And the only way you can do that is by building an explorative portfolio. And then you can always reserve the choice. Are you gonna build and grow it yourself like Amazon did with Amazon Web Services? Or are you going to make acquisitions? But you need to build that exploration to understand where the world is going. It's not just that, it's actually a skill to explore. Entrepreneurship and innovation is a different profession than management. It's not just business, right? It's not because you're world-class at execution and management that you're automatically good at innovation. So we need to build that skill, create that culture, create that safe space, create the organizational structures to let innovation really thrive. And that's what creates resilience. And now we're seeing, you know, with COVID-19, that those companies who have that structure, who have those skills, who have those people who've done it before, they're very agile now and they can shift business models, they can shift value propositions very quickly. Obviously, okay, this is a you know atomic bomb scenario. So you know, if you're in the airline business, you can do whatever you want. There's not not that much you can do, but in in general, you know, you can build that resilience. And what was good enough 10, 20 years ago in terms of resilience is not good enough anymore. Product innovation, better pricing, great quality. That's just normal today to even start you know start being in the game where the real difference comes from is superior business models and the capability to constantly reinvent yourself that is the the new game when it comes to strategic uh, differentiation and strategic competitive advantage it is a different kind of competitive advantage building that resilience into your organizational structure
0: so let's double click on COVID 19 that you mentioned seems to me that it's quite a hard innovation problem in that we're probably going to go from a relatively depressed recessionary environment to a change world in a not only a short space of time, but an unpredictable space of time. And the signals are going to be very complicated, right? We're going to see things changing, some temporary shifts in behaviors, changes in government policy. If you're one of these invincible companies, are there special skills that you need to deploy in the case of COVID-19 in order to be able to tune into and exploit this emerging new reality?
1: So I I think, you know, there is just this big shift towards exploration that now almost every company is facing, maybe not Netflix or so, that they're benefiting from from this at the moment. You know, it's really this focus on explore. So I don't think they need to change anything. They can actually benefit from having built this exploratory capacity before. Those who were mainly focused on exploit, if they have, you know, the financial means, because sometimes they spent all their money on buying back shares different story long conversation to have there. But if they, if they have the funds, they still don't have the skills. So they have to start exploring very quickly. Those who already have the organizational structures and skills to explore, they can really use this now. I think the, the challenging part is, is that this is such an unprecedented scenario that nobody knows how long it's going to take and where it's going to go. You know, good example is Warren Buffett not (laughs) buying any companies at the moment, despite having the cash to do it, because he says it's just not clear where the world is going. And he's traditionally known for using a crisis like this to buy assets. But even somebody like Warren Buffett says, we just don't know right now. So exploring is good, but you still need to create that safety margin to say, well, we're also just going to have to create that (laughs) cash reserve to to continue to operate. But again, comes back to some of the innovation myths. Innovation is actually not expensive. R&D is expensive, but innovation is not that expensive at the beginning because you test different business models and different value propositions, which can be done very cheaply before you start to scale. You only scale when you reduce the risk sufficiently. And that's what companies need to do now in this uncertain environment. It's exploring and testing, not making wild bets into new ideas, but testing ideas until the winners emerge.
0: So let's just go a little bit deeper on COVID-19. Supposing that I'm, um, I'm an average company and I, I've looked at the post-COVID era and I've understood the need for innovation and I've determined that the world is going to be more digital and there's going to be less congregation and people are going to be more fearful. And it's going to be a greater emphasis on hygiene, a greater emphasis on convenience. So I think everybody has gotten that far. How do you go further, and what distinguishes those companies that go deeper and more specific and get more traction on actually creating new businesses?
1: The whole lean startup movement that was launched uh, by Steve Blank and then, you know, pushed further um, with uh, Eric Reese brings part of that answer companies today are in an uncertain world. And the only thing you can do is rigorously test your ideas before you make big investments. So what does that actually mean? That means you shape the value proposition and business models very quickly around those market opportunities that you see. Could be around digitization, could be you know, opportunities that arise from COVID-19. But then you need to ask, okay, what are the fundamental assumptions underlying this idea? And those are the ones you test. And the hard part in innovation is not finding the idea. It's adapting the idea until you find a value proposition that customers care about and a business model that can scale. That's the hard part in innovation. So what you really want to do now is rigorously test extremely fast. And that usually doesn't even mean building something. This is another myth. People think, oh, innovation and testing, I need to build a prototype. No, you don't. The first thing that you need to understand is do those customer jobs, pains, and gains exist that you believe are there for you to even build a value proposition and business model around that. So very rapid testing, that's the key thing, and then make evidence-based investments in those ideas that show most traction. That's the skill that companies need to hone. Some already know how to do that. They have the processes to do that. They have the metrics to do that. They have the incentives to do that. Some have to figure this out very quickly because it's a matter of survival now.
0: I noticed an interesting thing, Alex, which is a lot of the examples in your book, Tencent, Apple, Ping An, Amazon, transcend traditional industry boundaries. You might call them platform players or multi-industry players. And I'm wondering, is that a sort of requirement, a soft requirement to be invincible in the long run? And how does that jive with this long-standing? Observation that diversified companies typically trade at a discount to their underlying assets.
1: Yeah, so I think there there, there are two things there. Well, number one, we don't have the scientific research to say that you know all of the you know new emerging players they're all transcending industry boundaries, but we do see a pattern from all of the research that we've done. But you know it's maybe not rigorously scientific enough, but it's clear. You know, take an example like Ping An. They believe that the banking insurance industry, as it was so far you know, as an industry, is dying. It's going to be disrupted by technology. So Peter Ma, the founder of Ping An, acknowledged that and said, we need to become a technology player playing in different arenas. So, you know, one arena is the health sector, to use Rita McGrath's terms. And guess what? They built the biggest health platform of the planet, you know, with Ping An Good Doctor, 300 million users, right? And that will help them at the end of the day, sell insurance products and financial products, but it's about playing in this arena of the health sector. So Why didn't Novartis or um, Roche or Pfizer come up with that, or another health player? It's because they're thinking too much within industry boundaries. The real game is now happening in arenas, Obviously, we know that from the tech sector, where you have Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and, and Disney, all you know competing in the same space, but all with very different business models around streaming. Streaming is not an industry per se. It's an arena where different players compete with different business models. And I think that's the challenge. Banks, for example, financial institutions, it's a challenge of pharma companies, because they still very strongly think industry Whereas, you know, arenas is the, the, the term to think of. The other aspect of the question that you asked is, you know, traditionally, take conglomerates. There's a difference between old school thinking of conglomerates and more new school thinking of arenas and portfolios of business models. Take Amazon as a good example. You, know, you could see Amazon as a conglomerate, but it's not really because there are very strong synergies between the different business models in their portfolio. One is e-commerce. The other one is take Amazon Web Services or Amazon Fulfillment. These are completely different industries if you want, if you take the traditional kind of a unit of analysis. But today, the unit of analysis of Amazon is the business model and the business model portfolio that they built and the strong synergies between them. So I think, you know, what we're looking at, we're looking at it with a different unit of analysis, which is the business model, number one, and the business model portfolio and the synergies between them, number two. So, you know, some companies will really exploit the data across at different business models in their portfolio. That's the the synergy part. So I think that's the kind of thinking we need to move towards and get unstuck from industry boundaries. I think financial institutions as we know them, most of them will disappear. Same for pharmaceutical companies. Their traditional blockbuster business model is dead and they're moving very slowly only towards this whole idea of arenas, new business models and business model portfolios. Because they're still a little bit stuck in the you know scientific era of uh, thinking about R&D as a science thing and not R&D as a business model and value proposition thing.
0: Let me take a step back, maybe because you used the word business model to your, your previous book. Most companies will talk about their intentions in terms of the word strategy. And a business model is obviously a broader concept. It's the, the architecture of the value creation machine rather than a plan for taking an existing configuration of assets to some new set of possibilities. Is that the way that you define the difference between a business model and a strategy? or And why should we think about in business in terms of business models rather than strategies, would you say?
1: Yeah. So in, let me use maybe the terms that we use in, in the new book, you know, the invincible company. For, for us, the business model is is how you create, deliver, and capture value. It's almost more the how. But then the business smart portfolio is that collection of business models that you have that are informed by your strategic guidance, your portfolio guidance that you provide, which could be, if we take the example of Ping An, to stick to that one, and saying we're going to move from being, you know, focused on uh, insurance and banking products towards becoming a technology player, playing in five different arenas. That's the strategy, and then the portfolio is what they start to build in terms of the different business models that allow them to achieve that strategy, the different hows. If you're a smaller company, you might have one business model, different products, which is driven by your strategy and your your, uh, strategic guidance. As soon as you grow, you probably have several business models, right? Different ways of creating, delivering, and capturing value. And that is driven by your strategic guidance. Take um, Logitech. It's an illustration we use to use a Swiss-American company, um, and a smaller company, uh, one that we use in our book, we say there the three things that Logitech really looked at in order to provide the strategic guidance for their portfolio and ultimately the business models in their portfolio, that is the strategic direction, you know, from a kind of a market perspective, from a financial perspective. One thing there is that they would reinvest 75% of their resources into new growth areas away from the traditional areas that Logitech was in, you know, around um, computer mice, et cetera. Then around organizational design, the second big aspect of their portfolio guidance that they would look at is saying, we're we're becoming a design-driven company. So we need to bolster from an organizational point of view, from a culture point of view, our design muscle. And then from the brand perspective, you know, being perceived as a multi-brand company that really focuses on the customer so that would be their strategic guidance that drives the portfolio and with that strategic guidance they would start to make acquisitions to make divestitures and then to build the explorer portfolio and bracken darrell the ceo of logitech who's done a phenomenal job transforming this company over less than a decade he talks about seeds, plants, and trees, right? And reallocating the money from the trees to the seeds in, in order to create the growth for tomorrow. And that's driven by their strategic guidance. So that's how we look at strategy is what drives your portfolio and ultimately the collection of business models in exploit and explore that you, that, that you have.
0: So shifting gears slightly um, back towards the idea of uh, two power centers, a chief entrepreneurial officer and a, a CEO. I wanted to ask, do you think it's possible to have two powers centers existing in a company? What would be an example of that? And also, is separation of powers the only way of achieving this, what you might call ambidexterity, this ability to combine exploration and exploitation? Or are there other ways in which companies can make that tricky balancing act?
1: Yeah. I mean, the way you implement it is, you know, there are various ways to implement this. What we believe in is that you need to have a strong commitment to innovation and give innovation power. And that can be as simple as the CEO spending, you know, 50% of his or her time on innovation. So that's kind of where we, (laughs) we say that's the barrier. I like to call it the Rita McGrath test, you know, Columbia scholar. She likes to say that look at the CEO's agenda and you will know how seriously he or she takes innovation by just looking at the time commitment. So if you take Bracken Darrell that I just mentioned, you know he would spend anywhere between 40 to 70% of his time on innovation. That's a model that works, right? That gives innovation the legitimacy it needs in the company. Now, Ping An, a different company I mentioned, very different model is the co-CEO where a different person has that power. And of course, Peter Ma as the CEO and chairman, you know, and the founder has an important role to play. If we take Amazon, that's an easier case, right? Where Jeff Bezos, the founder, also has the majority in terms of shares. So, you know, he can basically do whatever he wants, but he's that power center around innovation and drives innovation and the innovation culture. I think the big thing to, to really keep in mind is Innovation and making innovation happen, making the ambidextrous organization happen is a lot about design choices and not necessarily about, or not at all about picking the right ideas. So leaders today need to create the conditions for innovation to happen, for innovation to thrive, and for great ideas to emerge. And, you know, when we have, let's say we have two power centers, here's what needs to happen if you have a chief entrepreneur At one point, the ideas become big enough and strong enough for them to be handed over to execution. You know, some some leaders that that we work with, they would say that's around $10 million in revenues. That's not an exploration anymore, right? So it's not about it. It's not your turf anymore. You You need to move something out of exploration into execution. In our book, we call that transfer. And that's incredibly important that you have that partnership between explore and exploit whoever does that is it the same person the ceo or is it two power centers there needs to be a strong partnership so we can move ideas from exploration to exploitation some companies are actually very good at exploring and then they let the ideas die (laughs) my colleague tendaiviki calls this homeless ideas that never find a home in the company because this strong partnership between explore and exploit didn't happen Take Amazon Web Services, they had to create an own PL. Amazon Web Services didn't have a home at Amazon, so they had to create a home. Sometimes there is a very clear home from the beginning because it's more of a new product, uh, a new value propositions in the same business model. But those are governance decisions that need to be made very clearly and, and explicit so for this to even work
0: switching gears again uh looking at your book as an innovation it doesn't look like a conventional business book there's a lot of diagrams it's very colorful it feels more like a field manual uh but this was there some deliberate philosophy behind producing the book as a non-conventional business book
1: oh absolutely and from the first book you know business small generation to now this is our fourth book uh, uh with the invincible company we've always had that philosophy that a very visual and accessible book that's important. You know, with the first one, we self-published so we could do whatever we wanted. And I remember when we sold it to uh, our publisher today, Wiley, I asked uh, Richard, our publisher, you know, would you have allowed us to make such a, a visual landscape book? And he said, no chance, because you did everything wrong. <laughs> and what's funny enough is, you know, we, we created an entire movement that was un- unexpected of visual books in the landscape format. And the reason we did this was not because we wanted to put lipstick on the pig. We do believe, with my co-author Eve, and now there are other co-authors with us, uh, you know. but we really have this fundamental belief that some things are better explained with visuals, uh, with diagrams, with the right conceptual framing, with visual case studies, rather than just with words. Words can't explain. Words are, are good. You need them. But some things just can't be explained with words. So that's why we really focus on the visual. And that's a, that was a, that's a lot more work because every double page, these are what we call spreads, they go through 10 to 20 iterations. Do the math, right? With somewhere between 300 and 400 pages, all of these go through uh, 10 to 20 iterations. Some sections are very you know, strongly formatted with a very strong conceptual belief. Design was essential for us to deliver the content, we see it as a user interface, the book and as a user experience, where the visual just allows us to convey the ideas and concepts and processes in a much clearer and more applicable way. Because at the end of the day, our goal is to get business leaders and doers to change their behavior. So we need them to really (laughs) understand the ideas and then be able to take them right away and apply them so they don't have to do a lot of translation. That's only if you have a very good user experience with the book. So we invest heavily, heavily, heavily in the design of these kinds of books.
0: Thank you very much for your time with us today, Alex, and sharing your insights on the Invincible Company. And uh, I look forward to recommending your book to uh, my clients and uh, to exploring these ideas further. Thank you again. Thanks for having me, Martin. It was a pleasure.